Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. I want to share with you a little bit this morning and, and just in keeping with the theme uh, of the fourth. I think it's amazing God has us in the passage we're in. Acts chapter 20, and verses 25 through 30. Where Paul is speaking to the elder elders of Ephesus, the Ephesian elders. And he's encouraging them, admonishing them, warning them. And it's pretty important, I think, for us to take a, a deep look at this and, and to look at uh, where, where does the shoe fit? What do we need to do? What is it that's going on in our lives personally? What have we bought into that's not out of God's truth? And how is the Lord using his word to realign us, recalibrate us in our relationship with the Lord to make sure that that's the priority? There's an interesting verse in Genesis chapter 3. And I think it's indicative of everything we're going through. Because I don't think there's anything new under the sun. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, this is the serpent, we know this is Satan. Indeed has God said. Indeed has God said. Is there anything new under the sun? I think from the very beginning, we call it the fall of humanity where Eve decided to go against what the Lord had commanded through Adam. Adam decided to join his wife. We know that sin entered into the world through Adam. And as a result, sin has spread to to everyone. From the very beginning, the question is pretty simple and yet wickedly profound. Indeed, has God said. See, I believe as American Christians particularly, the question is, are we going to stand on what God has said? Not our emotions, not our feelings, not even our experiences, but are we going to stand on what God has said? I would put it this way, we must stand on what God has said. Absolute. So three things this morning, and I'm going to look at the last one a little bit more in depth. But the three are the purpose of God, the purchase of God, and the protection of God. Verse 25, the purpose of God, behold, I know that all of you, and he's speaking again to the Ephesian elders, Paul is. He brings it into the present tense. He had been referring to what he had done amongst them, how they had uh, watched him at work. Now he brings it to the present moment. Now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. He's headed to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's warned him that he's going to be in chains and in bondage. And as a result of that, because they're no longer going to see his face, he says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. The word innocent simply means clean or without stain. I'm innocent. I'm without stain. I'm clean of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The word shrink means to pull back away from. It has the idea of a a coward. I was not cowardly. I told you the whole truth. And I did it for all men. I didn't just do it for the people that like me. I didn't just do it for the people that agreed with me. I did it for everybody. 
I did it for both Jew and Gentile alike. He says that earlier. I declared to you the whole counsel of God. The purpose of God. The word purpose literally means counsel, the plan, the will of the Lord. And, and in this context, he's very specific with regard to the context. He's speaking of salvation. God's plan for humanity. God's plan of sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth in order to shed his blood so that there would be an opportunity for every individual on this planet to be rescued, to be stained. He says, I did not shrink back. I didn't pull back. I wasn't cowardly. He said this earlier in verse 20 of this same chapter, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. He taught them everywhere, whether it was in a home, whether it was in the synagogue, whether it was in the public square at the marketplace. He taught all of them, no matter what their nationality was, no matter what their belief system was, whether they were Jew or whether they were Gentile with all the pantheistic tendencies. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose the plan, the will of the Lord put together in order that every individual might come to know Christ. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you. And then he says this, Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There's not one person on this planet that the Lord Jesus Christ himself does not want to see come to himself. He doesn't wish that any would perish. What does he wish? He wishes for all to come to repentance and agreement and acknowledgement of the need that they have of the Lord Jesus Christ and the payment that he made for each and every one of us, the potential of that salvation in Christ through his own blood. God's put a plan together through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his desire is that everybody would be saved. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and following, he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men, doesn't make all men, but he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He doesn't want anybody to perish, he desires for everybody to come to himself, to be saved, to be rescued, to be ransomed off the slave block of sin. And that's why he sent his son who shed his blood so that we might have forgiveness. What's the purpose of God? It's pretty clear. Paul says, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, the plan of God, which is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross in order to shed his blood so that each and every one of us may be saved. How does that happen? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, by acknowledging and recognizing the reality of our state as being separated from God because of sin and that Jesus Christ and the payment that he made on the cross on our behalf with regard to his blood is sufficient alone to cleanse, to forgive, to throw away our sin. Have you done that today? Have you done that today? Maybe you're here today because it's July 4th, you're visiting family, maybe you just came in, you're part of the community, but have you literally gone to the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledged your need of Christ 
and Christ alone for salvation? And are you willing to receive from him what he wants to give? But he will give it when you believe alone. The question is, have you believed? Paul says to the Ephesian elders, I didn't shrink away from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And I would take it a little bit beyond simply coming to Christ, which is profound in and of itself. I would take it to the point where he's also talking about how to walk in Christ. What does it mean for the believer to walk in Christ by grace? What does that look like? How do we grow in the, in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean for a believer who is now a part of the kingdom of God, who's been forgiven, to walk by faith, to walk in God's grace? The whole counsel, the whole purpose of God. In verse 28, we're going to start at the end of the verse. I know that's not normally the way you do this. But I want to talk about why we're to guard. He's talking to uh, the Ephesian elders. Why are elders to guard? And by the way, I want you to understand something. It's not the elders alone that are to guard. If the elders are supposed to be uh, role models to the body of Christ of what it means to have a walk with the Lord, not a perfect walk, but a consistent walk, then that means that everybody in the body ought to be able to look at an elder and recognize what it means to walk by faith in Christ. And it also means that as we, as elders, are guarding the flock, that you, as the flock, begin to recognize what needs to be guarded and you begin to participate in this as well. This is not just, oh, that's their job. Let them take care of it. This is all of us. He's talking to the elders which are representative of the church as a whole, who are role models for the body of Christ. All of us need to be aware and we need to be guarding. Not all of us have the role of an elder. There's the purchase of God. Why is it that we need to guard? Why is it that we need to be aware? Because he says, which he purchased with his own blood. What is he talking about? He's talking about the church, the body of Christ, believers. We're not talking about a building. We've done a phenomenal disservice to Christianity by calling the building the church. We are the church. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't shed his blood for the bricks and mortar and the, and the stone of this building. He shed his blood for you and for me. That's amazing. That's important. I think it's an amazing thing to think that any time the church is attacked through truth battles and difficulties and circumstances. That ultimately it's an attack on God himself who gave his son in order to purchase souls by his blood. How precious is the body of Christ, the church? How precious are we to God? Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and following says, In him we have redemption. Through his blood, he purchased us off the slave block of sin. How? By his blood, meaning his life. He gave his life for us. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We didn't deserve it. He did it by his grace out of the free, kind intention of his will, which he lavished on us. I love that. Lavished on us. He didn't hold anything back. He gave it all so that we could be forgiven. How important is the body of Christ, the church to God? I would say pretty important. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Wow. You feel down? You feel like you're not worth anything? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Has Christ come to live within you? Have you had your sins forgiven because of the blood of the Lamb? Then, friend, you are valuable to the Lord. He loves you. Don't ever let Satan or your flesh tell you anything else. God loves you. He loves us. Warren Wearsby, great theologian, pastor of uh, Moody Church for years. He says this, never underestimate the great importance of the church. I I hear that all the time. I heard it this morning on the news. The political spin. Oh, we don't need to get caught up in moral issues. That's not the most important thing. Gay marriage is a done deal. Let's move on. (laughs) Right. Never underestimate the great importance of the church. The church is important to God the Father because his name is on it, the church of God. It's important to the Son because he shed his blood for it, and it's important to the Holy Spirit because he is calling and equipping people to minister to the church. Wow. Now, lest we get some kind of a blown-up, inflated view of ourselves, let's understand that we are who we are because of Christ, not because of anything we deserve and or have done. Amen? And at the same time, let's not minimize what God has said about us because he loves us and he gave his life for us. He purchased us. So there's the purpose of God, the purchase of God, but there's also the protection of God. Starting at the beginning of verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. He goes on in verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves. Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Be on guard for yourselves. We're talking about watchmen. We're talking about individuals that watch over the flock carefully, guarding the flock from any attack, guarding the flock from, in this context, wolves that would come in and ravage, not spare the flock, would drag them away, kill them, destroy their lives. Guard, watch over the flock. There's so many examples of this in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel and all through the Old Testament, about how Israel had watchmen that had fallen asleep. And Paul clearly is speaking to this issue to the Ephesian elders, and he's saying, don't fall asleep. Stand on that wall. Do your duty. Watch over this flock because it's precious to God. And I thank God, and I know our elders do as well, that it's Christ in us that is able to accomplish that. I thank God for our pastors, and I know they do as well, that it's Christ in them that strengthens them, gives them insight and wisdom to watch, to guard over the flock. That's why we say Christ-led. When we talk about our church and and something fundamental to this body of believers is the Christ-led, elder-guarded, pastor-guided, body-engaged. Christ is the one that leads. Elders are to guard. 
the direction and the doctrine that makes sure that the relationships within the body of Christ are biblical and are sound and healthy. Pastors are in the midst of particular areas of ministry, helping to guide those areas of ministry. Why do we say guide? Because it's the Lord Jesus Christ who leads. And pastors are to make sure that they're carefully attuned to the direction of the body that the Lord has for this body. And their own ideas and their own self-personal stuff doesn't get in the way. Because it's the Lord Jesus Christ who leads this body. Body engaged because every one of you are valuable to the body of Christ. Do you realize when, when we're yielded and submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we are surrendered to him, when we're walking with him, when we're rightly related to him, that the Lord Jesus Christ begins to fit us very specifically into this local body of believers in such a way that the body begins to come together. Everyone, when we're yielded to Christ, has a role. Do you realize that? Everybody has a role. God wants to fit you into the body so that you are learning more and more of Christ. You're walking with him. You're growing in him. You're being deepened in him. But at the same time, you're beginning to walk in the ministry and the service that he has for you, for this body. Not everybody's a hand. Not everybody's a foot. Not everybody's a leg. Not everybody's an arm. Folks, that's why we need one another. This is community. We've been called into the body of Christ, the church. We're valuable to the Lord. He purchased us with his own blood. And now we get to walk with him. Christ-led, elder-guarded, pastor-guided, body-engaged. How are you serving the Lord in response to what God has for you? How are you experiencing the Lord in the midst of your life and walking with him? We're to watch over that. We're to guard that. It's very clear that Paul gives two different categories here to watch out for. The first is wolves who come into the flock. He says, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Wolves teaching false doctrine. They are savage and they do not spare. They're savage and they do not spare. Think about that. They come into the flock. Are they believers? No. They're false. They're false prophets. Matthew chapter 7 verse 15 says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They love to kill. They love to destroy. They love to destroy lives, families, communities. Because they come in and they teach error. They teach something contrary to the gospel of God's grace. And as a result... People begin to believe something that is false. And when you begin to believe something, when I begin to believe something that is false, it begins to take us down paths that are destructive. A wolf can be somebody within the church. Now, what do I mean by that? Are they believers? No. But obviously, if a wolf comes into the church and is never recognized as a wolf, then they kind of make a base camp. And all of a sudden, they establish themselves in the church, and they begin to propagate all this false doctrine, and people begin to listen to it and begin to be led astray. And that's why Paul's warning these elders, you watch out for these wolves who want to come in, who want to destroy the church. 
But the second category is actually from among your own selves, men who will arise. The word among here means out of. They're they're in our midst, out of. They will begin to stand up. They're believers who perhaps don't have all the things lined up like they should. They're believers who begin to teach false doctrine. I would call them errorists. They're teaching error. We've got to watch out. Second Peter, he says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. See the indication there? The indication is that who Peter's talking about are individuals that actually know Christ. They've been saved, but now they've bought into heresies that are wrong. And they begin to teach them for all kinds of different motivational reasons to the point where they even can get to the point where they begin to deny the master himself who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. If they're a believer, then they're not a wolf in that sense, but rather they are somebody who is teaching error or they're teaching false doctrine. They're within the body. If a person is a professing believer and is teaching error, the question is, are they teachable? James says to teachers, we all stumble in many ways. There's times where we don't exactly say it correctly. Maybe we didn't have the full understanding of a particular passage, or or maybe we used a verse out of context. We, We all stumble in many ways. We need to be teachable. We need to have other people able to come alongside of us to say to us, I don't know that that passage exactly meant that. Or perhaps you were correct in everything you said about that passage, but you weren't correct in your focus. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, years ago, a tremendous theologian, had a, a medical doctorate and then got called into the ministry, has a phenomenal quote. And to paraphrase it, basically what he says is, when are we going to realize that the most dangerous individuals to the church are not those who propagate Error that is obvious. I don't believe in the virgin birth, etc. But rather, the most dangerous individual to the church is the one who emphasizes the wrong thing. Oh, yeah, amen. It's, a, it's the truth. Well, we emphasize coming to know Christ by grace, but now in our walk with Christ, we talk about what we're supposed to do. That's dangerous, friend. Because if you don't understand grace, you don't understand as a believer what it means to walk with God day by day by day, depending completely upon him, that he is transforming us. John 15, apart from me, you can do not one thing. If we don't emphasize that, then we've emphasized the wrong thing. Because we've emphasized something that's out of our own self-sufficiency, which will ultimately lead to error. And it will be destructive because it will bring in disunity and division within the body, which destroys our testimony to the community. I think it's amazing how Paul speaks to this over and over again. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, and there's many different verses on this, What's the ultimate source of false teaching? Where does false doctrine, whether it's from a wolf or an errorist from within the body, where does it ultimately originate? 
And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. It's demonic. Why? Because it is against Christ. And it deals with souls. It deals with eternal life and salvation. It deals with how effective we are in Christ through God glorifying himself in and through our lives. What's the motive? Could be finances, could be self-glory. There's a lot of different motives here. Galatians chapter 2 verse 4 says, But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Why do false teachers teach falsely? Why do they teach error? Because they want people to come under their authority. What do wolves do? They attack and they separate the weak. Right? A wolf pack attacks. What do they do? The, the sheep or whatever they're, they're going after begin to run, begin to scatter. And what do the wolves look for? They look for the weak ones. And they grab those weak ones and they separate them out. Folks, don't be the weak one. Get into the word of God. Understand what the word of God says. Be strengthened in Christ. Walk by his strength. Galatians speaks to the false brethren secretly coming in, but 3 John, verse 9, brings up a guy, Diotrephes. And John writes this. He says, I wrote something to the church. I wrote something to the church. Now, he's talking about scripture. He wasn't just talking about, oh, how was the food you had at the last potluck? He's writing scripture. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Wow. What's our struggle? Because this can lead to error as well. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and following, John writes, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Another way of of putting this, perhaps categorically, what is the believer constantly in conflict with? And I would say there's three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world system, which is designed and orchestrated by Satan himself, our own flesh, our own flesh, and certainly the demonic forces, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're constantly in conflict as believers with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're constantly dealing with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And it's only in Christ at all that we have victory because Christ has already accomplished the victory for us at the cross. So when we talk about all these things, we talk about our nation, we talk about our country, we talk about standing on the truth of the word of God, understanding what the truth of the word of God says as Paul begins uh, to admonish the Ephesian elders. What, What do we be about? Guarding, watching. Why? Because false teaching, whether it's coming from without in or whether it's in standing up, either way, 
It is against the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will destroy. It will cause division. There will be no joy. There will be no peace in it. There will be no love in it. And as a result, the testimony that the church has individually as well as corporately will be diminished within society. And all of a sudden, people who need hope, who don't have hope, will begin to look at us and say, we don't want that. Why are you coming around trying to give me that? What are some of the things that we're wrestling with? What are some of the things that we're struggling with? What are the things that we have to guard as a church, certainly as a nation? I would say fundamentally, it's truth. You can cut it however you want it. You can put it into whatever category you want. You can put it into all kinds of different arenas. But this is a truth battle. This is a truth battle. You remember Pontius Pilate? What is truth? It's perhaps one of the greatest questions that every one of us has to ask ourselves. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. The truth. This is a truth battle. And if we don't have it correct, what the word of God has to say, if we're not willing to stand as believers on the word of God, then we're going to buy in to error, to false teaching. We will be susceptible to wolves. We will not recognize error within the body. And we will buy into philosophies of life that seem good, that appeal to our flesh, but ultimately will end up destroying us in the end. They will destroy our families. They will destroy our children. They will destroy our communities. They will destroy our nation. How important is the word of God, folks? It's not just important. It's essential. It's the only thing. And we've got to stand on the word. Because out of that comes our thinking. Out of that comes our attitudes and our activities. How we define sin is based on what the word of God has to say. And if we don't define sin correctly based on the word of God, then we can change what it means to need a savior. And all of a sudden, Christianity and and the gospel of God's grace doesn't really matter. We can go anywhere and find whatever religious system we want, and it'll be good enough. If we don't define sin according to the word of God, then all religions ultimately lead to God. Jesus is the best way among other ways, rather than the only way. We begin to define creation as being superior to our creator. We see this in evolution, and we see this attack on our young people and on our society, this purposelessness. There's nothing to life. You just happened, and there's no real reason for you to be here. The might win. The might prevail. The strong are going to win out. So treat anybody the way you want them and just do everything for yourself. How's that working out for you? Marriage. My goodness. There's a lot I could say about that. I said a lot last week. You know where I stand on this. The idea that we can take marriage and we can define it the way we want to, 
comes directly from a wrong understanding of the word of God. It is the word of God. It is not the word of man. It is not our historical heritage. It is the word of God. And as a result, we need to stand on the word. And what does the word of God say about marriage? It is between one man and one woman, period. Materialism. Boy, do we got to guard against materialism, don't we? (laughs) Yeah. Everybody froze, so that's the... (laughs) That's my key. That's my note. I nailed it. Now, the truth is all of us need to be guarded in that, don't we? Are we living for now or are we living for eternity? Are we living for now or are we living for eternity? Are we more worried about our retirement stuff? Or are we more concerned about our eternal standing? Are we more concerned about the now and the temporal things, the things that are going to fade and pass away? Or are we more concerned about souls, people? Materialism is devastating this country. Devastating this country. We're so immersed in stuff. Maybe the Lord needs to take away a little bit of it to get our attention. Because we're the bride of Christ and he wants us to walk with purity in him. And he doesn't want any other idols before him. Sex goes along with marriage. We have a perverted and twisted society. One person put it this way, uh, pornography has become the wallpaper of our society. And I think that's dead on. You can barely watch you know, the Andy Griffith show on reruns of reruns of reruns where the commercials are embarrassing. Where are you at, man? Where are you at, men? I won't quote you the statistics, but they are horrific. You don't think we got to guard against the, the way we think, what we buy into, what we believe? Lastly, I'll put it this way, because there's so many different things I could go on this. Secular humanism. Folks, what we've been told as a church... What pastors have been told is separate the political sphere from religious sphere. Now, I'm not going to get into all this stuff, separation of church and state and all this kind of thing. Do you realize that secular humanism was declared a religion, a non-theistic religion, meaning they don't have a God that they technically worship, so it's non-theistic, but it is a religion by the Supreme Court in 1961. Did you know that? And now the secular humanists are saying, oh, well, we're not really a religion. We're a science. Folks, we should never back away, shrink away from declaring the whole purpose of God 
And when we talk about abortion, when we talk about all the different moral issues of our day, including gay marriage, etc., the church needs strongly to stand firm on what does the word of God say. And we should not shrink back from declaring it wholeheartedly with kindness, with gentleness, but with firmness. Because it's not our word, it's not historical, it's God's word. We don't have the right to change it. Are we willing willing to do that? I think America is an amazing place. How many of you have traveled to, to other parts of the world? I've been to a lot of different countries. God's blessed me with the opportunity to do that. You've blessed me with the opportunity to do that. Been able to preach grace in every one of those countries. I can remember going to a uh, time seminar, right? Franklin Templeton. Anybody remember Franklin Templeton? Our church staff, First Baptist Mount Dora, went to a Franklin Templeton uh, seminar, and we got there late. (laughs) Priceless, priceless. We got into the back, we sat down, and uh, (laughs) they said, we're going to give you a bunch of paperwork, we're going to give you a bunch of stuff, don't look at your neighbor, because they're probably going to get lost, you just focus in on what you're supposed to do, and of course we're all servants, right? We're pastors, we're trying to help one another, all of us got lost. We started laughing so hard. The president of the Orlando Magic at that time, the president's wife was doing the seminar, And she called a halt to the whole seminar (laughs) because she thought we were just being disruptive. She couldn't figure us out. And so she came back, said, "Everybody everybody get a drink. We'll get you caught up, you know. And she comes back to find out who the world are these idiots, you know. It was hilarious. But I can remember still to this day one question that she asked out of this seminar. If you had a purpose in your life, if you had a goal in your life, What is it that you would want to do with your life? And immediately, I didn't even think about it, but immediately came to my mind, I want to preach the gospel of God's grace in every nation in this world because I believe so strongly in the gospel of God's grace that it's able to transform your life, my life, our families, our children, our communities, our nation, that it is the hope that God gives to us. Folks, are we willing to stand firm on what the word of God says? Are we willing to stand firm on the gospel of God's grace? Not only how to walk and become a believer, but also now how to walk as a believer. And are we going to guard one another and this body of believers from wolves that would come in to teach error, to destroy, to kill savagely, from errorists who unfortunately will stand up amongst us and who need to be corrected gently, kindly, but firmly. And Titus 3.10 says, warn them once, warn them twice, and if they don't listen to you, then have nothing to do with them because there's something wrong with them. Are we willing to do that? Folks, we're in some amazing days. I believe we're going to see God do some things now in this nation that are remarkable.
because I believe there's people all around us that are hungry for truth. Are we willing to say, Lord, here's our lives. Use it in whatever way you choose so that through us, you may be revealed. Are we willing to do that? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.